Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode and post-Oscar interesting moments last night. Yeah, you Oscars. got that post-Oscar fever, Trevor? <laughs> um, I've got something. I, I got a fever and it, it needs more cowbell. No, no, I mean, all joking aside, I, I think, you know, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins definitely deserved uh, best uh, best actor for sure. I literally thought Mank was going to get more Oscar recognition. And actually, we are going to be talking about Mank today on our episode. So very fitting. But <laughs> it yeah, did I win thought some, though. Yeah, at least it got best cinematography, right? And yeah. production design. It was gorgeous. I mean... The, the production design in this film is just insane, like top tier, made, the whole look of it, I really thought I was transported back into old Hollywood during the 1940s. In case you guys are wondering, Mank goes through the history of the making of Citizen Kane and Mankiewicz, who was the main writer on Citizen Kane, and also he collaborated with Orson Welles to write Citizen Kane and- And The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and then, unfortunately, Orson got the all the credit and got the Oscar recognition for best screenplay. And Mank didn't get it until much later, year, like years later. So it kind of goes through the turmoil that happened during the making of and how Mankiewicz literally portrayed the character of Kane and based it off of William Hurst, mm -hmm. Randolph Hearst, yeah, uh, who was the big tycoon mogul at the time and had basically taken over all the newspapers and all and had a huge stake in the political game at the time and also you know he was also responsible for the incarceration of a lot of the, the japanese during world war ii mm -hmm. i came to find out and you know he wasn't a really nice guy he literally was just your typical rich guy uh, who used his money for power and not to try to help the human race. He literally was trying to just stay in power and build his empire. Yeah. And it kind of reflects in what we see in Citizen Kane with the character of, of Kane himself. Well, and, and that's why Citizen Kane is still to this day reveled as one of the greatest films of all time because it's still so uh, relatable. Mm -hmm. it's it stood the test of time for when it was made to where it's at now there's still so much in that film that i mean for it's example timeless. this this past this past political you know uh time we went through a lot of people were comparing trump to kane and hearst i mean he's hearst, like yeah. a modern hearst any who get into that seat of power and just use their money and their influence to just corrupt the whole system you know, it's it's kind of like the 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 Romans were doing that all the way back then too. It's just that age old story that keeps c coming up, and we're so drawn to it because as a character study, it's it's a brilliant character study on a man corrupted by power mm -hmm. and him trying to find love and some form of love in a in the weird corrupted way it is, um, especially in citizen kane itself you know charles foster kane you know literally his world has changed when he's taken away from his parents and thrown into boarding school and much yeah. like even orson wells 
he kind of had a similar background too because you know he had uh been raised similarly and you know it's I always found that with Orson Welles, he was always trying to search for, you know, because he was a true artist of in, in, in every sense. You know, intell- he was an intellectual. He was a great director. He was a great writer. He was a great editor. He really pushed cinema into the modern age mm-hmm. all the way back in like the 1940s when no one was doing the types of shots that he was doing in Citizen Kane, the low angle camera shots going through the glass you know, uh, at the bar and also the stuff he does with light, no one was really doing that. It was very, he was combining a lot of elements that set the stage for a lot of film noir films later on with his touch of evil and, you know, other films that he would go on to make the stranger or be in, you know, third man. He really set the bar with Citizen Kane to start that looking at film differently um, and really push it into the modern age yeah and it's you know you bring up the shots and everything and and about the power struggle and things like that how you know people become corrupt with power and i thought a lot of those shots were beautiful ways to express that for example the one that comes to mind is one everybody knows when kane's outside playing with rosebud the the sled Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, they pan, they come into the window and the mom and dad are, are talking with the, the banker guy about, you know, what's the future going to hold or whatever, those type of things. And that right there is a beautiful moment because it shows you how innocent Kane is and how far like removed he is from that world of power and corruption. Right. But it also shows you how easy he gets pulled into it, too. Right. Because mm-hmm. when he comes inside. Wait, does he actually come inside? He does come inside. Yeah. Yeah. Because. When he, when, uh, the dad is like also like trying to he, the it's interesting because you instantly get the dynamic of the parents the mm-hmm. mom is the domineering one yes. the the dad just wants you know he's just kind of like sort of like a drunk but also kind of like there but he cares about his kid and like what the kid what uh Kane will do with his life so and he would rather him probably stay there and be with you know he and his mom and stuff yeah, so and, and, it, and it relates to so much of what we go go about in today's life right you have those people that are born into fame or fortune and instantly they're put on that pedestal or they have to be a certain way because they're in the limelight they're in the you know they're the cameras on them 24 7 and with wells what he was doing there is really showing that Kane didn't have a choice his childhood was basically robbed of him right he was just he was just an innocent young kid like most people are and then once fame comes into it and the power it can change somebody so fast I mean you see it countless times with you know celebrities and and childhood stars that you know we watched as growing up and loved you see where they're at now and you know it's you know drug abuse or or, you know just things going on like they go down a dark path yeah they go down a dark path and I think Orson Welles showed that, you know, perfectly with Citizen Kane because ultimately, you know, Kane starts out as a, a likable guy. Everybody likes him. And then he just becomes this evil, vindictive, just like he he doesn't care about anything but money in himself. And it's it's such a true thing because money, everybody, you know, looks at money as like that is the thing that gets us through our lives. You know, ultimately, yes, it does. Of course, you know, money makes the world go round, as the saying goes. But at the same time, it's not the most important thing in life. And a lot of people get caught up and think that, you know, making money and going for whatever that is, is ultimately going to make you happy. But I've heard a lot of people say, you know, if you even have the most money in the world, money is not, does not buy true happiness. And I believe Orson right. Welles, you know, 
showed that I mean, perfectly. Kane becomes an empty shell of a man when we see him in his later years and everything, and he's just like this decrepit old man just living in Xanadu by himself or with the opera star, um, his opera you know <laughs> girlfriend yeah and she's miserable he's miserable and they don't have any you know the way uh orson wells plays with space in the oh in that my set, goodness yes. in, in that set it's incredible because that whole distance of kane from his girlfriend is like perfectly portrayed where we feel the sense of distance between the two as she's trying to do her puzzle and he's just like what are you doing you know like yeah. <laughs> and she's like let's go out let's go have like live life and he's like i just want to be in my mansion and just uh he's almost like an ebenezer scrooge in a way like yeah. a rump <laughs> kind and, of bah humbug yeah and it's interesting you bring up space right because i attributed the space when they're in the i believe the bank uh, at one point and, and you know most of the sets in that film are massive Everybody looks yeah. so small. And what I loved about that is that shows you just how much, you know, the power and the money is so much greater than the individuals, right? Right. We're, we're, compared to, like, the wealth and things that, that, you know, run the world, perhaps, we're so mm -hmm. small in comparison. We're just like a little, little, you know, little bitty thing. And I love, that's what I got from that, at least. Like, I loved that Orson had these intricate giant sets and that last shot, you know, where they're panning, uh, panning uh, around and and zooming out on that Over giant all his stuff. Yeah, all of his stuff. Like that wasn't seen in film, right? Those sets were immaculate and incredible. Well, and a lot of the sets, like he would just go in and and be like, "Hey, we're actually shooting something completely different." He just like gorilla shoot a lot of that film. A lot of that film was gorilla shot. He didn't know what he was doing. And, and well, no, he did know what he was doing. He just because of budget and also because of um just sheer will and he wanted to get this film made he found a way to make it yeah and he didn't care how he did he was going to make this film and it it's interesting because then when you see kind of the back history the backstory of the creation of how citizen kane came to be with mankowitz and how it was really his one of his greatest works that he ever wrote um as a screenwriter and that because he had that direct connection with Hearst, you know, um, was able to then create this giant epic. And originally the original screenplay from Mankiewicz was like, oh gosh, what they said, like 300 some odd pages and almost unfilmable. And then when Wells came in, he had to cut a lot of it down. And I think that's what pissed off Mank too, because it's like, that's his baby, <laughs> you yeah. know, that he's, he's chopping and everything. So, you know, and he, but I think a lot of the things that they cut because Wells had such a mindset of what the viewer was wanting and what we should be shown and not told um, was very powerful and, and really I think he tightened a lot of things that Mankiewicz probably wasn't really quite sure of in the original script. And especially with the character development of Kane, because, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you tell a man's life in two hours? Mm -hmm. It's you, you need like a mini series basically for the whole picture. But what was brilliant about Citizen Kane was that you're getting all these images of this man's life. And then it leaves it up to the, 
viewer to make the determination of whether this man was a bad guy or not. Yep. And the interesting thing is you're not actually getting the full story because it's told through different points of view. Yep. You're getting it from Joseph Cotton's character, who's like his best friend, Jebediah. You're getting it from the the opera singer. I keep blanking on her name, but you get it from her as she's like a washed up drunk and she's just bitter towards Kane because she basically died. He, he basically died and left her with nothing. Mm-hmm. And then you're getting through the detective, through the detective. He's finding out also from the kind of squirmy uh, Bernstein character. Oh, yeah. You're mm-hmm. getting, you know, some firsthand account from him and then you're getting it at first you get firsthand account from one of Kane's enemies in, in the in the uh, newspaper industry. Yeah. So automatically it, it, it starts you off like, oh, we don't really like this guy. He's just your typical bigot but then as it progresses and you learn more about his love life and that he had a kid and everything went downhill and when he went to run for political office and then had the affair come out it literally shatters his dreams of that and and then it's like you kind of feel for the guy because also he loses his uh one of his wives and his kid in a car accident i believe right like they crash um soon after that whole affair thing blew up so he's it's interesting how they portray all the struggles that this guy goes through to show the viewer that he's still a man. He's still human. Yeah. And and that's the interesting thing right? you bring up that the whole movie, the the mystery is what is Rosebud? And it's interesting. They all think it's a it's a lady, right? They all think it's a woman. Right. But at the end, Kane lost his, ch- his childhood. He lost who he was, like you were saying. He just lost him. He became yeah. a shell of himself. And everybody thinks, you know, oh, man, what woman ruined his life or what woman did he lose? That was part of it. Yeah. But if you ultimately lose, you know, because we all start as kids. Right. And, And we use those experiences and we and those stick with us for the rest of our lives. That's where everything that's our basis of us growing into who we are. Right. That's where all of our creativity flows from. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Character. Yeah. yeah, and he lost that. And if you lose that, you, you there's nothing left of you. That's like you said, that's the ultimate sad thing because it wasn't that it was a combination of so many things, but ultimately he just lost who he was. And there's a lot of people we've we've attributed this to other films we've talked about. There's a lot of people that in society today feel that same way. They feel like they've lost who they are or they don't know who they should be or what they should be doing. And it's it's repeated again in this film and it, it it's such a i feel like of all the things we talk about on the humanity side it's one of the things we come back to most with art with the art and the films we talk about and what defines us as human and what defines us as artists and and creators and when you stifle creation and you stifle certain aspects love um you know just general generosity towards your fellow man you get an as you said an empty shell you're not a three-dimensional person you're more like two-dimensional one-dimensional yeah. even and it just becomes about the money or about a certain thing that like you can't it doesn't really matter you know in yeah. the long run of things and how you've lived yeah. your life yeah i think i think kane is like the prime example of that kind of fall from grace like you have everything and you end up with pretty much a a rickety old <laughs> uh sled at the end and with basically nothing you just have stuff you know and and that's another thing like people who just like just buy things just to have because it makes them feel better you know and that's kind of what kane does 
because he's just trying to fill that void in himself to make him feel like he's important, he's needed, he's wanted. I mean, that's why he runs for political office. And I hate to say it, like, you have to be kind of like wanting that and craving that attention to go into the political atmosphere or into the, the political um, scape of the government and stuff, because you're being seen by the whole world sometimes, you know, so and you're under a microscope all the time. I mean, even with acting, even with, you know, and I, I think it also was Wells's way of kind of slapping, uh, throwing it in, in a Hollywood's face in a way, too, because he was saying this is also like the whole Hollywood. He, he was very on Hollywood. He wanted to just do his own thing and be he was like almost the first indie director who really just was like, I'm going to do my own thing. I, I just need a budget. Just give let, give me free reign. And on this film, he was RKO gave him the freedom to do have have final cut and have final say in all uh, anything in the film, which that's why I think it it really was a it still is a masterpiece. Yeah, I wanted to highlight on something you talked about with the with the sleigh at the end. The I think the saddest part, and we can attribute this to real life too, right? That no one else that would you know ever discover what Rosebud truly is would ever truly understand what it meant to Kane. And I feel like we have the same thing in real life. You know, when somebody passes, they leave behind all their possessions and things like that. But they people normally don't, unless you're super close with a person or something, especially if they're, you know, a, a millionaire or a, an artist or something, they leave behind, you know, their music or their acting or whatever it may be type of thing. But the things that are so, you know, special and we hold so dear to our hearts we all have those things most people will never be able to grasp or understand what they truly mean to us and and i i feel like in citizen kane it was the same right right even if they would have figured out what rosebud was there would have been no closure there just, they would have had closure because they figured it out but it's interesting because the one of the butlers thinks he knows what it is because he thought it was the snow globe that kane had at when he died dropped. And drops, which, by the way, that shot when the nurse is coming in oh. and the, the globe is on the floor and it, and the nurse is reflected in the globe. It was like the framing is just it's chef's kiss, it's chef's kiss, chef's kiss. It's a chef's kiss. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it's like that whole sequence is just but in a way, it's also uh, it, it's it foreshadows what Kane is missing. And he, because it reminds him of that snowy day when he, his whole life changed. And in a way, Rosebud is both the sled and also, I would say, that particular location in his life or that moment in his life. Yeah, that's where he was free. He was home. He had he had no worries. And that you can attribute that. Uh, yeah. I attribute a lot of things in this episode. But that's also when we, as we get older and adults, right? We we kind of lose that create that freedom to be creative and just goof around and, and you know have fun and let our imaginations run wild because we're put into that adult world where there are rules and regulations you have right. to follow you can't you know become a a uh, an army man fighting on the planet uh mars uh space aliens in your office space i mean you could but yeah. you're probably gonna get exactly. fired for well that. i do that all the time like in my own home studio i, I always <laughs> pretend that i'm I'm on uh, Mars and I'm I'm totally fighting aliens, you know, <laughs> just just the impending oh, I mean, I mean, uh, alien uh, about... invasion that's coming. Right. <laughs> totally. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'm on Pluto okay. though. I'm on the I'm on the the re- Dude, how reject is it planet. Over? The reject planet. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's freezing it's cold. It's lonely. <laughs> like like Citizen it's Kane. It's like, 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 like Kane himself. It's cold. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting we say that right because watching Mank. I attributed Mank to kind of being right. like Kane in a way. At the end of his life, yeah. he's pretty he miserable. He literally doesn't have... He's an alcoholic. He's laid up in bed because he he got in the car accident, and he has he can't move. He's taking his frustration out on both Hearst and himself in a very interesting psychological way because it's like it's he's internalizing a lot of... A lot of Kane, I think, is Mank. And Hearst, both together, Mm -hmm. because I agree. There's a lot of similarities to, um, kind of the fall from Grace, because you know at the time, Mank was he he wasn't really wanted by Hollywood. He had he was just going from job to job, just scrounging together a living, basically. Um, you know the and then the his wife being in like a completely different state on the opposite coast, and then you know having. Um, no one really here that he could call a friend. I mean, except for uh Marion, who was Hearst's uh basically girlfriend at the uh, well wife at the time, and you know had a he has a very estranged relationship with her too because it's kind of like older brother sort. Of, but then there's like also some chemistry there mm-hmm. too, and you're kind of like especially <laughs> when they're just talking in the garden. Um at the beginning of the film or I'm sorry, mid midway through the film and they're going through like all the zoo and they've left the party and they're just talking about literature and they have that connection of, Oh, it's like a meeting of the minds in a way too. And it's kind of like, he doesn't have that. He has mm-hmm. that somewhat with his actual wife, but then he doesn't really, he has it with some of his co-writers, but not that much. And then he's always fighting the studio heads you know, with uh, being mayor and, um, you know, his uh, his uh, cronies. And it's just like, yeah, you know, the guy really doesn't have much. He, You know, his kid, his kids aren't around his. So I think that sense of loss and that sense of wanting something that you can't have that that seeped its way into the script because he was in that kind of situation mm-hmm. in his particular in his life. I mean, artists tend to you know life imitates art that's that's uh one of your famous famous slogans right there yes coined by elliot <laughs> yes <laughs> well spe- speaking of mank you know we talked about at the beginning of the beginning of the episode how it won best cinematography last night at the oscars because it's yeah. recorded on a monday so yeah it'll be released later <laughs> but yeah it's on a monday uh what was one of you I- i'll say one of my uh you know favorite scenes in the film i'm curious to know yours but one that really i think shows off the cinematography really well is when Mank first goes to mm-hmm. MGM for the first time and they're running down yep. all the rules, like uh, the three rules of MGM and it's just like following him through and he's like this. They're going down this, the back lot cut. and they're just like walking yes. like this. <laughs> yeah. And and the guy's just like, it's such a beautiful, like delivered scene too. I just, I, I don't know. It just instantly pulled me in uh, for sure. That's one great moment. Another great moment I think was when we first are introduced to Marion and she's stuck to the, pull and she's being she's about to be burnt at the stake that whole sequence 
the, oh. the <laughs> dialogue, the cinematography, and just how they set up the scene is just like he just wanders onto a set. It just like starts making friends and stuff. But that's <laughs> that was like that old Hollywood thing because you could do that back in those days. You could just walk onto. I mean, like there was uh, one guy who was um, who became like a, a director, but he started out as a PA on Mel Brooks' set. And he just wandered onto the set of Young Frankenstein because it was an open set. And then he was just like, I'm just going <laughs> to pretend that I'm I'm here and I'm I'm part of the crew. And they let him work like he just walked on and the rest is history. And then he was able to work his way up to a director. You do that today. You're going to get like tackled by the security guards and and be asked to leave. I was going to say, and especially in today with with COVID and everything, all the protocols. Oh, yeah. You're, you're definitely not getting near the set. Oh, definitely not. Not unless you've been tested like 6,000 times. So it's just so amazing how far Hollywood has come and like the different norms that we take for granted nowadays is like back then it was very like, we're just gonna, we're just trying this out, guys. Let's just make whatever we can, see what sticks. I mean, like any film that you can think of, like idea wise, let's just try it and go shoot it if we have the money we got it so let's just uh get some backing and we'll go out take a camera a couple of cameras and go shoot it yeah so, and i feel like we're kind of seeing a similar thing nowadays but it's more of the online creating not not necessarily as much in the movie way but be, people were you know finding new ways to innovate on the online whether that's you know with tiktok or youtube or twitch all those streaming platforms instagram even people were finding new ways to create films even with with jorge for example our last episode shot his first feature film on an iphone for a hundred bucks and the fact that you can make it look like a million bucks for a hundred dollars is just yeah. insane because the technology is so far advanced now that we have that capability but back then you had to create all this stuff you had like especially wells i mean he came up with certain camera lenses and such and camera moves that no one had done at the time and they had to build a lot of that stuff from scratch or figure out how to do it no one thought oh, let's put the camera down on the floor and shoot up and make the character seem like he's imposing and more powerful than he really is. Or the height, he created that whole spatial height that mm -hmm. we see now in every film, and it becomes like the archetype now for every film on, on how to do cinematography. Well, he so, had roofs. He had roofs yeah. on his actual sets. Like, there was a ceiling. Yeah, and it's like the whole sense of size, it works its way into the power of the character, who has power over the other. And then that taps into more of the psychological, internalized, underlying theme of the scene itself, which was brilliant. I mean, no one had ever done that at the time. It was just like, yeah. and this guy's just doing it, and he came from a theater background. But yeah. because he came from a theater background, Wells was able to then apply a lot of what he learned from working with the theater company that he was with. Um, and like, just, it was like a kid in the candy store. Now I got more <laughs> freedom to, yeah, now I have more and, gadgets to, yeah, exactly. Well, if you, if you've seen also like his adaptations of a lot of Shakespeare plays, he shoots it cinematically like an epic, like something from like Lord of the Rings, uh, or even the, the current Macbeth film that came out with, um, with Michael Fassbender very visually gorgeous uh, beautifully shot and it's just a theater play with a big movie budget and really wells really 
started that back in the 40s and 50s, especially with his version of Macbeth, Falstaff, and he, he did like a, a ton of adaptations of Shakespeare's plays to film. The great, the, the interesting thing is like the acting tends to be very over the top because it plays like a theater play, but cinematically, visually stunning. And it's interesting you were talking about he came from a theater background because I was reading in an interview that he did uh, that he kind of had an ignorance of not knowing what he shouldn't should and shouldn't do when making a movie so that it allowed the cinematographer greg tolan to do a lot of those shots that you know if if he would have known better like if he would have been following what everybody else was doing at the time we probably would have never had some of those incredible shots that we got in citizen kane right well wells was a learned man he he read everything he he soaked it up like a sponge he he could quote shakespeare he could quote hemingway he could quote anyone like he also at the time he knew a, a bunch of these writers too as well he, they were good friends of his or he bumped into them he even bumped mm -hmm. into hitler at one point i think yep and so you know he was in a time where you know once you're in that upper echelon of art artistry and the hollywood scene he was able to really just soak everything up like a sponge and then apply it to his own work and it really comes through when you have these beautiful films, especially with Citizen Kane, uh, and then he followed it up with uh, the Magnificent Ambersons, you know, and, and then Touch of Evil. You know, it's like this guy really knew what he was doing <laughs> for sure mm -hmm. and just loved film, loved shooting film. And it was a language for him. It was a language for him to show, well, A, to express his artistic vision and also B, to work with some great actors and people. He was like really about the whole collaborative aspect of film, too, because, you know, that's what it's about, you know, creating that family. But it's also he was searching for that family he never really quite had probably when he was growing up. It's like like he just wanted that sense of being admired and being loved. That's why he also went into acting, I, I think. and uh, and also directing and everything so yeah a fascinating guy <laughs> yeah well there was something i wanted and you can move this like back to the beginning we were talking about lighting and stuff if you want um mm -hmm. oh that was off the record now we're back on the record but something you touched on earlier was the lighting in citizen kane and one thing i found interesting is that the detective you know that's trying to find out what rosebud meant to kane what rosebud is is always kind of hidden the whole film in shadows and it's cool because it, it gives you that, you know, Orson was playing with the idea that, you know, it's very secretive. He doesn't even know what's going on. And the fact that it's the detective that's in shadows is a cool, you know, what's the word? Uh, al not allegory. Uh, motif, I guess? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, motif. motif? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a cool motif because it's showing that he's also in the dark, much like the audience. And you still don't see his face even at the very end of the film because he's still shaded in darkness because no one still truly knows what rosebud means right we it's like almost unraveling an onion and the many layers that you see and we're just given these little moments and glimpses into this man's life through the eyes of the of the news of the uh detective and yeah i mean the way wells plays with light especially after the whole newsreel set up at the very beginning of the film and then we get we cut into the newsreel news room. on the march yeah news on the march dun, 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 dun. and, and it, 
<laughs> the music is just so corny and I love it, but it's so forties. That's what they would do back then. And it's a great way to introduce us to the character and who the man was. It starts us on the journey. And then we are then taken out of that journey and brought back to reality and seeing like all the newsroom guys like talking about this guy and just like saying like oh yeah just throw in another clip of whatever and stuff or like oh that clip's too much and it's it's interesting because it's also what is the truth what how are we seeing this truth being manipulated how is it manipulated and how are we getting it conveyed to us through the visual uh landscape of the film and welcome to the news in the 21st century literally Putting a spin on it. And he was saying this back in 1941. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Like that that's something yeah. I noticed too, right? When he goes and says, oh, we're going to run this in the newspaper. We're going to run this and this. Oh, we don't run that type of stuff. Like that's the start of your, you know, as they call it today, your clickbait titles, you know? Yep. Check this out. Look at this. I can't believe this is happening type of thing. Well, you look at today's media, too. There are spins on multiple stories. You you could go for a very liberal paper or you could go for a very conservative paper. I mean, and each one has their own slant towards a certain political group or people. And it, it, you kind of have to read both sides because then you get more the broader picture of things. But also you see what to look out for, too, on when someone's trying to manipulate you and slant you towards thinking a certain way. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we had that with the past four years and stuff of, you know, the Trump administration and how to control the media. Once you control the media and, and can create something for people to get behind and also manipulate them into thinking a certain way, then you've you've got complete power. That's how. Mussolini, that's how Hitler did it. That's how all these dictators have done it in the past. And yeah. again, 1941, you got to think they were going through World War II at that point. World War II had just had happened, you know, 1939. Propaganda. And propaganda during World War II was heavily used to influence the minds of the people. I mean, Hit the mm -hmm. Germans did it in, in with them, and also we did it with our uh newsreels because we hired hollywood directors john ford frank capra and a ton of others to go With over Japanese and stuff and well and, yeah uh, and germany and germany to go over and shoot the war that was all mm -hmm. part of that whole hollywood documentary expansion that they wanted to show our boys you know we're fighting the good fight and everything and defending democracy you know as you know millions of them are dying and giving their blood for our country you know you use the media to put a spin on things and to influence people and i think kane is a prime example of and and a slap in the face to that because it literally is telling or showing that whole thing going on in the world at the time yeah like how the mindset is when when he comes in and says we're changing up the paper completely we're gonna do it this way and it's like well we've never done that it's like, yeah. but don't worry, we're going to get more engagement. We're going to get more in today's world. We're going to get more clicks. We're going to get yeah. more visits to our page because the media is much different these days, right? The newspaper industry is, is slowly, you know, fading out as, as is our normal, you know, media in general, our news, news sources, but the online news and media is thriving beyond. And it's, it's even, the thing is now you don't have to buy something to get your news. You just go to a website or click a link, and that's why it's so much more dangerous today, too. 
because it's so easy to manipulate and change, even more so than it was when it's on you know a physical piece of paper back then. Right. I mean the the sale of information is going to be the next big war, I think, because nothing is you know like nothing is sacred anymore. No, you can't hide things, and everything comes out in the open. And also, it's it's the age of information. And if you have information, you can use that to one up someone. You can use that to manipulate people, and also stay in power. So it's yeah, it's it's amazing that this film literally is still relevant to today because you know like it, it it just goes to show you man has not changed over the past what 90 some odd years or yeah about 90 years 80 yeah. years 80 and years. and that's what we always i mean i feel like we go back to that so many times it's like it's like we're on a broken record at this point but <laughs> and we then... see it we see it yeah <laughs> but we see it in in everything that we watch that we've watched this point from directors from all over the world have yeah. similar, you know, storylines and inputs and views on society. And it echoes so much with where we're at today. And they mm -hmm. made those films many, many years ago. Yeah, like 30, 40 plus years ago. And they're still relevant to, the, to today because I, I, until something changes within the very top, it'll, you know, then we won't, there's no way for the society to advance to a certain degree and in, be enlightened. And know that, you know, like we can't do this stuff or we're going to end up in the dark ages again. Yeah. And, and I think with Citizen Kane, it's reveled as one of the greatest films of all time for its cinematography. You know, it's just new ideas that were presented in the film that had not been seen. But ultimately, like we've covered this whole time, it's about its relevancy. I think it's even more relevant. It, it's now. culturally yeah. relevant. It's historically relevant because if if we don't have these types of films that remind us of where we've come from and where we're headed, then what's the point of art? You know, what's the point of having these forms of art to have that dialogue? And I, I think that's, that's the beauty of cinema. You have that dialogue. You can really, it can be used in good ways. It can be used in really bad ways too, but in essence, in the, the essence, the heart of cinema, you have to mold it to what you are feeling personally and how you want to express that art that is in, or that creativeness inside you. So, yeah. And yes, we're going very deep on this episode, guys, but it, it's yeah. we're tackling a lot because the, these film, especially Citizen Kane, tackles a lot of that whole sense of um, self and belonging and belonging. And the, yes finding yourself and losing yourself and uh, i mean it tackles so many that's another thing right it tackles so many issues or, or even hot button topics you could bring up today type yeah. of thing and, right and then it's carried over into mank which you know directed by david fincher i mean fincher's a master craft director uh very i mean you can see his love for wells and his love for just hollywood old hollywood history cinema cinema you know and yeah. that really comes through in mank i think personally i thought it was the best picture of the year but i know i will some people disagree with me but you know but you'll fall well, on that sword here's the thing is like it was very it was very interesting because this year was a very interesting year because we had covid and we had a lot of yeah. the filmmakers that were up for best picture 
had this very interesting underlying sense of isolation, aloneness, a little bit. Of, it was very a lot of the films were not very uplifting. They were there were some of them were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of them that were like we are still tackling so many issues in this country and it's a but you know um Obama said America is like a work in progress and it's always changing. You know, we're always having to have the discussions of all these issues that are popping up in the country because thank God we have freedom of speech here. For the most part, you know, it's mm -hmm. like we still can speak our minds and still talk about things. A lot of the films had that similar theme to them. And the fact that I, I but personally, Mank, I thought just hit on all levels because a just being a fan of Orson Welles and also of Citizen Kane mm. and how much that really influenced my cinematic journey as well. And my cinematic career uh, or my film career you know it, it's influenced many filmmakers and it's just nice to see like his homage to that time and that genre it was, it was so funny the first time i watched mank i thought it was in four by three format <laughs> because i was teleported to that time and i just got lost in the film uh, the second time yeah. i watched it i was like oh it's actually in widescreen i didn't notice that. for some reason my subconscious thought I was watching it in four by three ratio. Wow. Like Citizen Kane, because they capture the framing and the look of Citizen Kane. Oh, with, absolutely. But it's just in widescreen format, which I, I thought was great. And the fact that how they did the sound to make it sound like an old film, that I want to say a big shout out to the sound team was incredible because with Mank, they actually re, they would. Uh, well, they did. They recorded the sound on set and then edited it and did some of the sound design as well. And then they played it back in an actual theater to and then can't re re-recorded it in that theater to get that sense of we're in a theater. That's how they got it. OK. And then they also apply because they tried playing applying just like filters like EQ to, filters to and it, stuff. Yeah. To make it sound like it has a filter on it because, you know. Audio back then wasn't as high fidelity, as high quality as it is today. And the recording equipment was completely different. So the fact that they reamped what we call reamping and re-recording it, with that, you get that very analog tactile sound to it. I'm, I'm geeking out here because I'm a sound guy. So you're getting a free audio <laughs> lesson from, from Elliot today. You, like you get a sense <laughs> that we're watching the film in a theater and it, it, that film belongs during that time and belongs in that era of hollywood that's my shout out to the sound team over there <laughs> yeah i mean they're both two incredible films that if you haven't seen either one of them yet i don't if you haven't seen citizen kane you have to watch it if if you're in any part of the film industry and you haven't seen citizen kane you're doing yourself a disservice to go your out own. and watch it <laughs> yeah you can get it you can watch it on like hbo or something and and uh Amazon. i mean it's everywhere it it's it's one of the you know most regarded as one of the the best films of all time. You ha you need to see it. And then Mank is on Netflix, so go watch that if you have Netflix, which most people in in the world do at this point. Go yeah. watch Mank. <laughs> Seriously, yes. two films yeah. that are you won't, you won't it, regret it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I this is my second time seeing Citizen Kane, and seeing it a second time now that I've been exposed to it the first time, I picked up on a lot more, and also just doing a deep dive into Orson Welles as well. Yeah. Well, it's also great that we now have almost like a sister movie to it, 
like a companion piece to it with Mank. Watch them back to back because it's Mm -hmm. a great way to delve into that era and that time. And it's a great character study, too, on both Mankiewicz, Hearst and Kane and Orson Welles. Because it's interesting because all those men had very similar arcs in a way. Which is crazy, but yeah, it's true. And they all struggled. But, you know, when you're in that upper echelon, you that's I I guess it comes with the territory in a way. Yeah. And it comes back to the ultimate thing. Yeah. And it it comes back to what we said earlier, right? Money ultimately doesn't buy happiness. You could you Mm -hmm. could have all the money in the world, all the power in the world. Yeah. And you could still be the most miserable human being on the planet. Well, it's like even that film, All the Money in the World that Ridley Scott directed with uh, Getty. Getty was another one. You know, the the Getty, you know, that whole thing with his, I think it was his kid. No, his nephew or something getting kidnapped. And then he's just refusing to pay the ransom. It's just like, that's your, that's your family and you're not doing anything. Uh, So anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ultimately it boils down to that human life yourself is the most important thing. It's, it's priceless. So invest in it well. Amen to that. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on social media at Film Detectives for further news and upcoming shows. Join us next week as we explore filmmakers from around the world. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.